Club.html is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Previously on MCU.html. And what the fuck are they avenging? He's he's just one of those legendary dudes. Yeah, I wish I could disagree, but it's really annoying. And I appreciate all of it, but at the same time, so much of this Coulson Loves Cap stuff is so manufactured and forced into these handful of sequences. Tom Hiddleston's face when Thor pops in is such genuine terror. And now the conclusion. Hey everybody and welcome back to MCU.html. I'm Nico. I'm Kevo. And last episode, we started talking about the Avengers, the movie, the thing we'd been building toward. Turns out there's a lot more to talk about in that movie than just one episode's worth. So, we split it in two. Here, we're ready to pick back up with the Avengers where we left off. But first, Kevo, how you doing? How you feeling halfway into this movie? Still pretty good. Still enjoying it, for sure. Me too. I actually find the movie holds up a little bit better than I'd been expecting. What stood out for you so far? A few different things. I like that we're seeing more characterization in Black Widow. I really enjoy Mark Ruffalo's turn on Bruce Banner, which I'll speak more on in a moment. One of the things that we've been discussing is the recent revelation that Loki is somewhat mind-controlled in this film, and it's one of the things that we've been watching it for. I definitely see it's there, but it feels like one of those cases of it's way too subtle to be perceived without us having been ever told it in the canon so far. I completely agree with that. It's there, and I totally see it. I can't deny it. I went into this really negative on it, having watched the movie. I actually came into recording the podcast negative on it. But Kevo turned me around. He had some good points as we were watching, and the more we discussed it, the more I saw it, and the more I kept going, yeah, you know what? I think I see it there. I also really love that you brought up that this was our first time getting to interact with Mark Ruffalo's Hulk, because it's at this point that he's so synonymous with Hulk. I can't remember Ed Norton's turn as the character, and I certainly don't have any mental image of Eric Bana as Bruce Banner. No, of course not. I never actually even saw that one. I did see it. I don't really remember it. I remember thinking that's a lot of special effects, but I really don't remember the film itself. I also wanted to comment on something I'd noticed as we were watching this movie. As we're watching it, I can't help but see how this is really amazingly bringing together the plots of Captain America, Thor, and Iron Man, sort of interweaving them carefully and evenly. Sure, I do think there's elements that look more directly from one film or another, but this really does feel like a crossover in the truest sense. I completely, completely agree, and I'm glad that we chose the point that we did to stop the last episode, because it is the climax of that part of the film, drawing all of these characters together and and having them confront each other. And now we get to a point where the film film is going to slow down for, I clocked it at literally 20 minutes. It feels like all of the action gets sucked out of the film. And that's one of those things that's kind of true of these movies. There's always that extensive period where all we do is sit around and discuss what's been going on. I understand that that's sort of natural to these films. We need a period of time where we cannot have action. If for no other reason, budgetary perspective. You need to be able to have downtime, but the downtime just drags. I think it's even well-written downtime. It's not that it's downtime I don't enjoy, but for the first 50 minutes of this film, it has felt like a race to get to the Avengers finally all meeting and being in one place, and then we finally get there, and we have this explosive battle between the Avengers Prime trio, and it's got this explosive finale, and then we just sort of sit around the hovership for a while, talking about stuff, getting to know each other. The slowdown also affected my notes during the movie. I have notes like, maybe too much talking now. We're just like so, so much talking. Like, this is the Loki Fury scene, the Avengers scenes, it's just too much. But that brings me to the note that I don't know how we haven't gotten to yet. I have a note that says, this Cap costume looks so bad, don't put it in the light. My note says, Cap looks like a cartoon character, 
too crisp and shiny and clean and colorful. He does look a little bit like he should be a mascot for some sort of soap company. 100%. I think he's going to sell me cereal. Oh, and then my next note is there's just much talking, so, so much talking. That's my next note. I get that. I really do. There's some cute jokes and clever gags, because this is also the first time that Tony is on the bridge of the helicarrier, so it's at least a little bit different from the scene earlier. One positive note that I have is I really, you know, it's funny. I, I mentioned in the Iron Man 2 episode how strongly I feel about Don Cheadle taking over the role of Rhodey because he is... I feel so much more humble and less aggressive. I actually feel the opposite way about the Ruffalo Norton switch and still positive. I really love, you know, when Tony compliments Bruce on turning into a giant rage monster, Ruffalo looks annoyed at him. I don't think that would have been Ed Norton's reaction. I think he would have folded in on himself meekly and it's a perfectly valid interpretation of the character, but I like this stronger interpretation by Mark Ruffalo here. And there's some kind of nuance to it, too, because I think Ed Norton was, whether or not directly because of his own involvement, working with a weaker script. Ruffalo has so much more character, and one of the biggest things is that the Hulk goes from being the character that you're kind of like, ugh, I wish he wasn't in this movie, to having almost every one of the best lines that isn't said by Robert Downey Jr. He has the great moment later on with puny God. He's got I'm always angry. There's so many terrific lines that Ruffalo delivers that made the Hulk such a popular character that he had to show up in Ragnarok. I really am glad we're talking about how much the Hulk plays into this movie because he's even Loki's linchpin. That's maybe the one part of this movie that I think doesn't always work. All the talking leads to more talking. Let's talk about the talking for a minute. Oh my god, I feel like I'm on an Aaron Sorkin show. Aaron Sorkin's superhero drama would be absolutely the weirdest thing. Everybody's just doing a gab and fly. It's crazy. Yeah, but I'd watch it, so... It would be probably my favorite show of all time. So, one of the things that this scene did give us all of these talking scenes is we had the cute moment on the bridge then we had tony and banner working together in the lab and then we had tony and steve kind of trying to big dick each other do feel a little bit that cap is out of character in parts of these scenes specifically the scene that you're referring to i believe where they start really big dicking each other is also in the presence of the staff and that does need to be stated and that's exactly what i was about to get to The staff is also in the room when the group starts arguing, and that makes them realize they have to do something about this. And that's actually the point at which the film does start to pick back up. Like I said, it's about 18 minutes after the battle, so it's when things really do start to, like, okay, now we're getting somewhere again. And not only do we get somewhere, we get into, like, the first real Avengers sequence. As much as I enjoy having the three Prime Trio members fighting in the woods absolutely for no reason, (laughs) I am much more thrilled to see the Avengers have to quickly adapt and come together to stop Loki, which, if you're an Avengers comics fan, you know that's what brought the team together. And that's a really cool moment. Yeah, absolutely. And even if you're not an Avengers fan from the comics and from the beginning, it is a lot of fun to watch and see these characters, especially after this conflict, still find a way to all come together and face this disaster. One of the things that makes this all come together is the recontextualizing we did at the beginning of the film, having seen the movie a million times and knowing what we're going to be looking for, that Natasha can break anybody and is able to break Loki is her superpower. That's how we're shown she can stand up with the gods. Another thing that was really important, like we talked about, is seeing Hawkeye as a bad guy. Hawkeye is about to come back up and literally nearly single-handedly be the thing that brings the helicarrier down. I definitely agree with a lot of that. I think it was important to show what an excellent physical asset Clint is to, as I've said, justify his presence in the climactic battle of the film. And because we know Black Widow is going to become an increasingly more important character who does get more focus than Hawkeye does, it's nice to see her being given more assets. We've already seen what a great fighter she is, but this is really showing what an excellent agent she is on top of that. You know, and one of the things that I think is really fascinating is that Hawkeye, I think, was meant to be more significant than he is. I can only think of four Hawkeye appearances, Avengers 1, Avengers 2, Civil War, and Thor. 
I can't think of any other Hawkeye appearances, but I feel like Black Widow's appeared like eight or nine times. I almost said Infinity War because he was on all the friggin' posters and we were all like, yep, Hawkeye's in this. And then he just didn't show up. That's right. I just, I, in my mind, I placed him in the film. But yeah, I think he's only been in the four. And it's distracting almost that he's in this movie. I almost wish he would have died in Ultron. I'm not going to lie, but... We'll get there. We'll get to Ultron. All right, Kevo, can you do me a favor? Because I feel like we've been talking about the talking for a really long time. Can you get us from that Avengers Prime Trio battle to what's pretty much the beginning of the next action sequence, the ping, at about an hour and 12 minutes in? Let's do like a quick uh, play-by-play of those scenes and let's react to them real fast and get back to the action. Yes, I can do that for you. Okay, so we open up with Loki being brought onto the helicarrier and being caged by Fury. I like the introduction of the cage. We do a lot of great scenes there. It was a really smart place. I also enjoy the phrase caged by fury. That's pretty great. Yeah. (laughs) So the next scene is the Avengers roundtabling about Loki and Thor revealing the whole Chitauri plot. Several pop culture references. I like and don't like that sequence. And I think there is something about the he's adopted. That's funny, but also kind of like problematic, kind of problematic. And I get that Thor doesn't really get problematic. Thor just gets more mead, but it's one of those things. It's just an iffy moment. I think that whole thing is a really great time because it sets up that Tony is trying to prove that he is the leader of the pack. Vroom, vroom. So from there, we get to Banner and Stark working on the scepter in the lab and Rogers and Stark bickering about orders, which is really funny and interesting the way this is going to be completely flipped in the 13th film of this franchise. Right now, Steve is very much on the side of we follow orders and Tony is like, fuck that, I do what I want and I get paid. So we're going to talk a lot about how Steve is representative of the feeling of America. He's not just a a stickler character who can't change. He changes for the needs of the people. Right now, what the people need is order in the face of something new. But what they're gonna need is someone to stand up to corruption. Steve is great like that. He is. So from there, he storms off to go snoop around the helicarrier and discovers Hydra-like weapons. Uh, While Banner and Stark muse over S.H.I.E.L.D.'s intentions, the three of them confront Fury with those intentions, while Romanoff interrogates Loki and deduces her intentions for Banner. I've already said what I love about this sequence. I love a lot of it. I don't necessarily love the whole S.H.I.E.L.D. is trying to make weapons out of the Chitauri tech or, the, well, the, the, the cube tech, I guess. But I understand. And, like, it feels... I don't know. It's weird that Steve was just talking about follow orders and now he's like literally snooping around in his giant Captain America pajamas. Yeah, those cartoon pajamas, man. Get me my cereal. Super conspicuous. He brought a change of clothes with him to the... I I don't even know. Whatever. All right. Are there any other scenes before we get back to the action? Nah. Once Black Widow gets the information she needs out of Loki, she stores right upstairs to the lab where everyone is already bickering because they are around the scepter. You know, I think part of the reason I never considered that Loki was being affected by it is the fact that we consider it to be his staff. But when you watch a scene like this, you can really understand how it would be affecting his mind. I also really loved that one of the things they discovered in the S.H.I.E.L.D. database is information about Phase 2. I really hope that's a purposeful meta joke about what's to come. Absolutely. By this point, they already knew that they were going to be, you know, a 20-year, multi-phase, seven-story, 16-wing, five-hotel. It's just nuts. Partridge in a pear tree. Absolutely. So that second fight, huh? Yeah. I super enjoy it. I like a lot of what they do here, but there's so many layers to it. We need to kind of dissect where every character started and where they end up, kind of. Yeah, go for it. So it starts with Nat versus Hulk, and Tony is working with Steve, and then it changes over to Thor versus Hulk, and Nat versus Hawkeye. So it's Nat versus Hawkeye, and Thor versus Hulk, and Tony's working with Steve, and then... Thor winds up versus Loki, right? Did I get everything? I believe yes. Then once Thor gets dropped, it's Coulson versus Loki. And the entire time, it's Fury and Hill holding down the bridge. And a lot of weird other things happen, too. Most notably that Hulk also nearly kills a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent or two, 
And I find that really interesting because it's kind of bringing together the whole reason to fear the Hulk, the whole reason this is the story. We also see shades of what's going to happen in Age of Ultron with Black Widow and the Hulk, where she becomes one of the placating figures in the group for him. So it's, uh, there's that. (laughs) And I think in a lot of ways, this scene is kind of about brotherhood. You've got Nat trying to stop Hawkeye for his own sake. You've got Tony and Steve trying to work together. You have Thor versus Loki. You have, you know, Hulk and his anger. So there's so much going on in this scene that's kind of about brotherhood and about the way it's kind of tearing them all apart to come together as a family. Very much so. I I even noted that I loved when the call goes out to say that Barton is on the helicarrier and immediately, without hesitation, the Black Widow says that she copies and she goes for her friend. And it's really important to note it's her friend. A lot of people early on in this fandom were wondering whether or not we were supposed to feel any romantic chemistry between her and Barton. But with the revelation of Barton's family to come in Age of Ultron, it really is a friendship between these two agents. And I really think that's great. There aren't enough strong heterosexual platonic friendships in media. And I loved it. Especially not in action films where women are lucky to be included as anything but the girlfriend. Yes, and if you aren't the girlfriend, you are usually coded very masculine and non-sexual, and that's not something that is the case for Black Widow. It's just these two don't have that dynamic. And I think that's important because I feel as though they will eventually try to give her that dynamic with just about every male in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There's hints of it with Steve, hints of it with Bruce hints of it with Tony, and unfortunately that is true of her Marvel Universe counterpart, who does have a romantic relationship with the Avenger Hercules, who is, yes, that Hercules, and a friend of Thor's, having formerly been an opponent, and it's sort of, he's like a backup Thor when they just sort of need a Thor. And speaking of Thor, one of my favorite moments in this battle sequence comes from Thor taking advantage of Hulk's unworthiness to distract him with the hammer. He can't lift the hammer, so it's a great way to pin somebody, and Thor is ultimately going to use it as a neat trick throughout the films, but I did like its use here. I did too. I loved seeing the battle between them. I believe I mentioned last episode, but I can keep talking about it as much as anyone wants. A lot of the motivation behind Thor Ragnarok featuring Hulk was from this film and their dynamic here, and it was a desire to see these two characters play more off of each other. It's partially, I think, that Thor, whose movie wasn't always the most entertaining, was given so much great material here, and having Thor in the sequence watch Loki kill Coulson. When Thor watches his brother murder this guy, he's kind of saying, oh shit, my brother's gone off the deep end, and so it had to be Thor who sees him, and giving him that moment cements him with Coulson, who otherwise he didn't have the most powerful relationship with. I think it worked in a lot of ways, and Thor's part in this battle was really tremendous. I also think that Tony and Steve had some really important stuff here. Yeah, it's a good sequence. It shows that they work well together. They play very well off of each other. I love a lot of the jokes and banter. One of my favorite jokes is Steve saying, well, it seems to run on electricity. And of course, I love the Tony reference to reversing the polarity. There are touches about this era of the Avengers that are uniquely Joss Whedon, and I will miss them when they're gone. As much as Joss's touch kind of ran its course with what Marvel was looking to do, they wound up limiting him a little bit too much. I do think Age of Ultron suffers from a lot of creative interference but here no one knew what was happening they couldn't have known the monster hit they had on their hands so joss was given a lot of room to run and he captured such wonderful moments i think it harkens back to what we said in the first episode about the number of drafts leading to the best possible version of things i definitely agree and as we're winding down the discussion of this battle here we come to the conclusion of it which is that final scene between loki and colson and i think that this scene is the epitome of joss whedon writing the way it's just so very quiet and simple and colson just so eloquently tells loki you lack conviction before blasting his ass through a wall and then saying oh so that's what that button does Everything about that is classic Whedon, and I really think it was a great scene. Without getting too into that sort of stuff that I'm kind of famous for getting too into, there is something 
very okay hear me out on this Coulson knows he's not a superhero, but Coulson knows that he can support superheroes better than anybody else because of his love of superheroes and his even greater love of doing what's right no matter the cost. So Coulson, in many ways, is kind of submissive. He's kind of a superhero's cuck, if you will. Thor is the real alpha bull. He's the real deal. And Loki is up here wearing some sort of magical scepter strap on, kind of waving it around like he's so great. And Coulson's dying breath is, you know, you'll never be as good as the rest of them, which is just like, oh, my God. He even says, I recognize you're a super being. You're an inferior super being. I mean, that's quite a wild read, but I can't argue with a single thing that you've said. So I think what's even crazier is I think you had some amazing points on how long all of this takes oh yeah this battle was about 16 minutes it clocks in at just under 16 minutes when loki steps off the helicarrier which is mind-boggling i was looking back at my notes and i actually noticed that from the ping that we determined started this action sequence to the start of what i consider the big climactic battle is only 28 minutes yes i have that same number Wow, so here's where they understood how to do all the talking, because we do get some pretty important talking sequences. And we're about to get another small lull, because it's going to be ten minutes from the end of this battle until the Avengers really start to assemble. It's still not the start of the battle, but it's when they commandeer the jet, and Cap says, you know, his son, just don't. It's going to be about ten minutes of everyone, like being sad about Coulson and Thor not being able to pick up his hammer and the Harry Dean Stanton security guard cameo that probably would have been Stanley 10 years earlier. Everything here does lead us back to where we need it to lead us back to. It's a little bit too 90s music video montage for me at times, but I'm not bothered by it. It doesn't drag the film down in the same way that the earlier interlude did. It's a little draggy, but once it starts to pick up, you're like, okay, okay, I'm back, I'm back. Especially because once it picks up, it picks up with the thing it needs to pick up with. Tony Stark's charisma. There's nothing that sets off the Avengers as a concept like Tony Stark's belief he can do it. That's what started the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Tony Stark believed he could stop the Ten Rings while he was their prisoner. That is what makes this franchise work. Once Tony says we can do it, we can do it. Once Cap says we can do it, we can do it. Once all the other names here say that their name here can do it, they can do it. Yeah, and I think part of it is that it's important for Tony Stark to do it on his own terms. He was trying to figure out how to navigate S.H.I.E.L.D. bringing him in. And there's that moment where he says to Cap, we are not soldiers. And you can see the PTSD that he's going to be dealing with in Iron Man 3 already starting to develop. And the thing that brings him back around is doing it his way. Well, before we get to the Stark Tower sequence, which I know we have a million things to say, on. I took a look at your notes, and I saw that you had some really good points about the baseball card sequence. Yeah, it's it's the same thing that we've been saying this whole time of Coulson's made to look m- like more of a Captain America fanboy in this film than he is anywhere else. I was talking about it with someone recently, and they tried throwing in my face, well, he was carrying those cards around with him when he died. Nah, bitch, that was a trick. Thank you very much. Well, and I also, uh, I just, I don't want to be the guy, and I don't want to do it, because I know we've talked about it a little bit here and there, but, 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 in many ways, Joss Whedon has declared this is the last moment of Phil Coulson's canon. He absolutely created S.H.I.E.L.D. as a TV show, but he has stated for him when he wrote this, Phil Coulson died here. And I mean, as we know from what we know of the TV show, he really did specifically die he dies here and he gets brought back on shield through whatever cree stuff i don't remember entirely i know that there's stuff but he does really really specifically die and i know that it seems like i'm splitting hairs with that but i do think it's important and it's still important for the story to recognize that his death happened and was significant and was i mean used as a ploy by fury a little bit but part of it is especially considering Coulson's dying words really were an impassioned speech about how great the Avengers are. I forgive Fury for using it as a ploy, because it's clear that it, that is what Phil would have wanted. It is what Phil would have wanted. 
And I think that's what's important right now. So everyone gets all motivated and everyone heads off. Steve has that great moment with Natasha and Clint before they take off in their jet. I love when Tony is approaching New York City that his suit starts to falter a little bit because of how damaged it is. That's uh, that, was, that was a really cute moment. I also love when he repulsor blasted an Infinity Stone when you think about it. Yeah, you know, we're going to talk about it a lot. I think I'm going to demand a special episode where we just take a look at every appearance of every stone and argue about how incorrect they are. Even if not incorrect, like, it just makes me laugh to think now we know what this thing that they were up against was. And Tony, like, fired at it with his laser. Bad idea. Bad idea. It also seems a little bit impossible that this was Thanos' plan. Destroy Earth? That was his plan? Overrun the planet with giant monsters? That's his plan? I can't remember how many stones he knew were on Earth. If he knows that the time stone is on Earth, then like maybe his thought is, let me have aliens ruin this planet and I'll just grab this thing I need. But I don't know. That's a huge, huge gamble to use two stones you already have to do that because then you lost the two that you had already. Which puts the whole thing in a really weird combination. I don't even, I just can't even, you know? It's one of those things where, like, you're just going to sit here and you're going to try and figure out this cipher forever and it's not going to come together. It's a dumb plan, but I'm also one of those people that hates any time anyone says Thanos was right. So it's, it's, it's hard to argue about brains for a character who thinks, let me just destroy half life, half of all life in the universe. Sure. Well, I believe that brings us to the aforementioned Loki Iron Man scene. Yeah, very popular scene, and with good reason. Well, I actually want to bring up something that we have discussed a little bit in an interesting way. I believe that the scepter doesn't work on Iron Man specifically because it's not directly on his like chest and his heart is a little bit different. Like, I really think it's just that Loki's confused that it's not working. He's not aware that the man has a giant hole in his chest that's filled with a metal device, and this thing doesn't give you control over metal devices. Like, I had speculated, I don't know, is it the new element that he created? I was like, what do you think is blocking Loki from being able to control Tony? And your response was basically, oh, there's just a thing in the way. And I mean, I don't take that away from you. I just hadn't considered it to be something so simple. But, I mean, Loki can be pretty dumb. He just keeps tapping away and then gets, you know, screwed. Knowing how many drafts and different versions of this film there were, I wonder if there is one on the cutting room floor where Loki actually does get control of Iron Man for a portion of the battle. I think that would be very, it would be an interesting take for sure. I'd had a similar thought. I don't know that Iron Man in this battle would be as big a deal because I think between Hulk and Thor, they could take him out pretty quickly. I think the bigger question is, could Iron Man have substituted in for Selvig or Hawkeye? Could Iron Man have been the guy that built the bridge, and could that have been the source of Tony's original PTSD, that his genius was used for such evil? It would have been an easy way to get that Avengers Prime battle that they were demanding on the studio's end, where Cap, Thor, and Iron Man fought against each other. If Iron Man was evil and Thor was coming in to stop his brother's machinations and S.H.I.E.L.D. was sending in Captain America to reclaim Tony, it would have been a really great way to get that moment more organically. Though I'll be honest with you, I would have not enjoyed losing so much of Tony Stark's charisma throughout the film, because that's been one of the most consistently praised bits on our end. I almost wonder if that's why they needed Selvig. Yeah, I can see that. So for how much of the film, then, would you be pitching him have been under Loki's control? For what portion of the film? Probably the first episode we did. Okay, so you are suggesting Loki having gotten control of Tony at the beginning of the film and leading into the Avengers Prime battle. Yeah, I think that would have been a really interesting use of the Tony as evil bit, because I feel like if you're going to pit Tony against five other Avengers and 
either of those Avengers are Thor or Hulk. You're talking about people that Tony has needed to create specific armor to be able to handle. And I don't believe his regular armor is quite there. Yeah, I could see that. I think alternately, I would have been open to, say, Loki departing the helicarrier with Tony as his hostage somehow, and Tony recovering to be part of the battle. Like, if Loki needed Tony for the final stage of his plan for whatever reason. Uh, Just for a shorter version. I do like yours, though. I think that's about as much of the film as I could have handled Tony not being himself in. You know, Hawkeye we don't know as well, so it didn't really affect us that he wasn't himself for most of the film. Selvik we liked, but we did get a lot of him already from Thor. So, yeah. It definitely would have been a very different, very different take on the film, though. And I even think I can hear Selvig being like, no, I need Tony Stark to be able to do this. He's the only one with the knowledge of a reactor this powerful. It would have fit the constant theme of no one is as smart as Tony Stark. Mm, Definitely. We even see threads of that with nobody is as good at gamma radiation as Bruce Banner, which basically is no one is as good as as being poisoned by radioactive isotopes as Bruce Banner? I just need to point that out. I mean, technically it's correct. Uh, I think the leader and the abomination have something to say about that. They're just waiting for Paramount to demand their spinoff films. Yeah, any day now. I would really love it, though, if they would please bring back Ty Burrell as Doc Samson. I'm a big Doc Samson fan, and while I think he was a terrible casting choice, I mean terrible i like ty burrell and i would see this iteration for sure yeah so we reach the one hour 42 minute and 20 second mark of the film and the doorway opens and the battle of new york begins the battle of new york those words come up everywhere they come up in all the movies they come up in the marvel netflix universe they come up in the marvel abc shows it's nuts that was actually a t-shirt they sold that following new york comic-con uh was a i survived the battle of new york t-shirt It was actually a really cool one. I remember one of the things that's really awesome about New York Comic Con is they've had some pretty cool Avengers swag over the years. And Kevo and I attending every year, not just because we're huge fans, but because we're also comic creators. We have a book, Kid Riot, about a super inclusive team of superheroes running around and saving the tri-state area. Uh, Because we've got that going on, we're always at Comic Con. And we've managed to check out a few of the cooler Avengers panels over the years. It's been a great time. They do a lot of really great stuff to celebrate these movies. And I think that's part of what pulled us in. That's why we're still talking about this movie how many years later. But anyway, back to the Battle of New York. Kevo, take us on home. Well, the battle starts and it's pretty much chaos right from the start. There's a lot of really cute cameos in this scene, by the way, for people who care about uh, the sort of actors that they're cameos for. And where Jokai from Joss Whedon's Dollhouse appears as a cop, he will later appear in the television show Agent Carter. There's also Growing Pains' is Ashley Johnson, who has become one of those Joss Whedon darlings. There's a lot of focus on her random waitress character throughout the Battle of New York, which seems really strange. But there's two important things to know about that. A, there's a deleted scene from earlier in the film where Steve is actually one of her patrons at that cafe, which is why they continuously lock eyes. And second, Joss hoped to have plans for Ashley Johnson through the Avengers. There were points at which she was possibly going to be Sharon Carter. There were points at which she was possibly going to be Carol Danvers, and then she would have ended up Captain Marvel. Ultimately, none of that came to fruition so it's just this really powerful emotional connection that steve makes with this random waitress at a cafe underneath stark tower in new york city sure and that's such an important thing to talk about because when we're going to talk about how these movies have changed as we go we are going to talk about how the creative control goes from the individual film to a bigger picture just getting to do something like that earlier we talked about him just sticking the wasp in there uh, deciding that this woman just might be sharon carter That's insane, because Captain America is a separate film with a separate creative team, and it's something that the Marvel Cinematic Universe would certainly not let happen out of nowhere later on. Every time a character is used, it is so meticulous and so well thought after Phase 1. It's unbelievable. The Marvel Cinematic Universe, while still a recognizable product, no longer feels like the same creative creature after this. I get that. I really do. And we're going to come to that in the next Avengers film with how deftly the uh, Maximoff twins have to be used because of copyright stuff. I can't even handle 
I, I'm my, I, I can't even. So I actually don't have a ton of notes between the opening of the battle and the circle shot that we ultimately get of the Avengers as a team. Uh, really, my only note is I, I don't love the CG on the giant Leviathans. They're way too dark. I really can't make out the details. I frequently can't tell like when, when their mouth is open. It's just really, really not the best CG. Uh, ultimately, just disappointing as a viewer. And I think one of the things that gets to be a problem for us is we saw it in IMAX where it just might have been one of the greatest IMAX experiences anyone's ever had. It's just so beautiful. I do think in some ways seeing it in this smaller, less HD form has taken something from some of the special effects, but ultimately they didn't take anything from the film. And it's not all bad, at least. It still looks really great when we get to that iconic moment of, that's my secret cap, I'm always angry, and the Hulk punches out that one giant leviathan, and then we get the awesome circle shot. All that really still works for me. As I was doing my research, uh, one of the things that I came across was Joss Whedon talking about the development of that scene and how it was birthed out of some of the concept art from the film. And him seeing a shot painted of the Avengers standing together helped focus him to build the moment and make it work and say, okay, how can these people all be standing here in this moment? How about at that, right before that, is when we destroy one of these giant monsters so all these other aliens are reacting to that in the moment so there's there's a few seconds where they can regroup. It's just, you know, the way that different parts of making the film feed one into the other. Something you said was that Joss felt like he had to earn this moment. And I feel like he really, really did. You watch Thor realize that after last movie was about there has to be a way to stop his family. And he even offers Loki a chance for redemption at the end of Thor. Here he understands he might just have to kill his brother. There might not be a choice anymore. Cap has come to realize that the world is so much more complex than anything he's ever understood. In fact, he is part of the thing that grew this world. He's part of the super soldier program, and that is such a humongous part of the foundation of the MCU. Black Widow stood up to gods and has survived. Hawkeye had his autonomy taken from him. Everybody in this, oh, and you know, Hulk is Hulk. Everybody in this movie has had to earn still standing there in that group shot. They had to survive. And I guess it should have been called the Survivors, not the Avengers. I still don't know what the fuck they're avenging. Anything and everything all the time. And so I'm looking at my notes and I'm seeing that there's about 18 to 20 minutes left in this battle. The next 10 minutes are going to be a lot of action and a lot of ups and downs that start to slowly trend more and more downward. One of the funny things that I kept an eye out for while watching this scene, by the way, and I had our boyfriend Jonah help me as well, I wanted to know exactly how many arrows we physically see Hawkeye fire in this entire sequence for the record before the circle shot there are eight and then after the circle shot there are eight when jeremy renner hosted saturday night live they had a sketch of the avengers making fun of him for how few arrows he can carry and you know we all yuck about it but he really does only fire 16 arrows on screen during the battle of new york And it's so funny because we're talking about, in many ways, the least powerful member of the Avengers. We never count how many lightning bolts Thor blasts or how many repulsor rays Iron Man shoots or how many times Captain America throws his shield and haughtily thinks about patriotism. But so much of Hawkeye's superhero identity is tied to this one thing. Everybody has their iconic moves, but Tony doesn't just repulsor ray people. Thor doesn't just throw his hammer. They all have multiple moves. Hawkeye really just has the one move with multiple versions of the thing that he is shooting. But he's really just point-and-shoot guy. He also has an enormous amount of charisma about it at a few points in this battle. One of the biggest problems with making the Avenger that we got the least time with, the Avenger we knew the least, was that meant we really didn't get to connect with him. The very few times we saw Hawkeye, I cared very little. Other than that, he just kind of treads along till the end of the movie. Yeah, basically. 
So then about eight minutes before the final conclusion of the Battle of New York, we are introduced the nuclear option against the aliens. I, I don't know. I, I didn't love this addition. It, it was just another thing to gum up the works and make us root for the Avengers against our own government. I really feel like they could have gotten to this another way. In fact, we mostly think that was the weakest part of the film. Whether it's the War Tribunal stuff with Fury, or it's this, this is the part that worked for us the least. I see no reason that the thing that created the doorway couldn't be about to explode and need to be thrown into into the portal, or it's going to destroy everything. I don't know why that couldn't have just as easily been the situation. Then they wouldn't have the stone on Earth anymore. Sure, take the cube out, I don't care. The device itself is about to blow. Anything can be a warhead, these are superheroes. Well, yeah, no, absolutely, yes. That I completely understand what you're saying. They could have come up with any single other freaking thing to cause an explosion. They didn't need to introduce this nuke through our government. I think the only storytelling, the only thing that it facilitates positively for the story is to give us a moment where Fury is on the Avengers' side against his bosses. But it paints his bosses in such a horrible and overdramatic and incompetent light. They want to nuke New York City. That's such an extreme reaction. I don't think anyone in their right mind would side with those people. And then I'm just left thinking, oh shit, our government is incompetent in the MCU. Well, I have good news and bad news. The good news is, I don't believe it's just our government. The bad news is, I'm pretty sure it's all major governments, and I think that might be worse. Oh, totally. But this is the point where it becomes Tony's movie. I seriously think if you change who sends the nuke through the portal, it's anyone's movie. You only have three choices. It can only be Thor, Iron Man, or Hulk. They're the only three people who would have a chance of getting that nuke into the sky through that portal. I would have been fine with it being Thor to uh, make up for his brother being the guy to basically cause it. I would have been fine with Hulk doing it because Hulk smash. And I am best with Iron Man being the one to do it. I think Iron Man doing it earns us something because he started this universe. So he should be the one to save it in the climactic film of the phase. I agree. I think a lot of the MCU really is either Tony's or Steve's story. I think a lot of the Captain America films facilitate the entire MCU, and a lot of the Avengers films are very focused on him. But especially early on, most of the MCU was focused and revolved around Tony Stark, which makes sense because his was the film that sparked the Marvel Cinematic Universe in the first place. So it does make a ton of sense that he would be the one. Uh, he's the only one with a girlfriend, so of course it gives us the prerequisite hetero romance that we need to keep this movie moving along, because I guess that's what every action film needs. But we also get a really beautiful moment of hetero bromance that, you know, I've made it very clear, my favorites in these films are Thor and Captain America. I just wish I could get some sort of, like, Captain Lightning. And there's this moment where Thor sees Tony as he's falling back through the portal, and he says, he's not slowing down. And there's this, like, no, this is my responsibility. I can be the only one who can save him in his voice. And then Hulk comes through, and it's just... Every one of them wanted to save Tony, and it's just so good. And you know Steve would have if he could have. Like, absolutely. You know Nat would have if she could have. Nat is the first person to throw herself into danger. Yeah, she was one of the first ones saying, Tony's not responding, what do we do? There's that great moment in the battle where Nat decides she's going to take a ride on a Chitauri sky screamer thing and cap's like you're sure you're up to this and she's like uh yeah sure yeah it'll be fine i can't believe we almost closed out the episode without talking about that moment because it's just another one of those great black widow things she has so much great stuff in this movie that we really weren't able to give too much attention to so let's take like a two minute thing about black widow we have all that beautiful stuff with her ledger and she wants to make it right and the reason it's beautiful is because there's no point she's written as a woman this entire film 
I feel Natasha could have been a male or a female, and it actually wouldn't have changed anything because the person they kept putting her up against was the Hulk, the actual out-of-control animal monster. There's moments where they let her play her femininity to her advantages, but there's no point at which I believe the Black Widow falls into many of the Marvel Universe's more problematic female tropes. And I think what you said that's really important is she's not written as a woman. Um, immediately, my mind went to her opening scene in this film where she's, you know, wearing that skimpy dress and she's not wearing shoes. Thanks, Joss Whedon. And she's kind of sexualized visually. But if you think about the writing, if anything is referenced to her gender, I don't think it's in any way that is so important that it couldn't have just been just slightly tweaked and she could have been anyone, y- you know? You know, and this is all just in praise of the widow. She's had so many appearances across the phases. She gets a lot of love here, and I think it's due. Absolutely. So the other moment that's really rather memorable is when Hulk takes Loki, who is, I'm a god, you can't defeat me, and he just smashes him around a bit and then says, puny god. Well, Loki finally tries to get up after the Battle of New York, and he is greeted by the only other group shot we really get in this action sequence. We get the panorama shot, And this very static, everyone's beat up, pointing at Loki with their weapon. Somehow Hawkeye found another arrow to point in everything. Number 17. You know, it's funny. We mentioned when we watched Captain America and before that when we watched Thor that we felt like those movies could not stop beginning. I really feel like the Avengers just can't stop ending after this point. You know, we very slowly see them transporting Thor and Loki back to Asgard in the middle of Central Park for absolutely no reason, and then Bruce swanning off in a Ferrari, and Cap having his adorable 1940s motorcycle with his brown leather jacket, and you think it's over, but no, then we cut to Fury, and he's talking, and then you think it's over, but no, then we cut to uh, what is now going to be the Avengers Tower, and like, that one I love, I wouldn't have cut that at all, I love seeing Tony and Pepper again, that this is this is three out of four professional outfits for her in this film, by the way, because we saw her in a suit on the plane. So like, like I said, I'm not that mad about the Daisy Dukes. And then we pull back and we see the only letter on Stark Tower that's left is the A and it's beautiful. But like, and for real, we did point out that none of these movies could start except the ones that started in media res couldn't figure out where yes. they caught up. And now this movie won't end. It's distracting at times that the Marvel Cinematic the Marvel Cinematic Universe is like that guest that came late and won't leave no matter how many hints you give and you love this person they're like your BFF but you're like no 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 I've smoked you out I'm out of drinks I don't have any more pizza you have to go we've played all the Smash Brothers there is I put everything away I turned off all of the unnecessary lights I clearly changed into my pajamas I vacuumed under you twice I have work in the morning why are you still here and speaking of I have work in the morning at the very end of this film we are introduced to someone who is going to have several very busy days if we are to believe the timeline on these films We meet Thanos. Kind of. Sort of. Almost. But finally, but not really. We see his face, but I'm pretty sure it is arguably the wrong color anyway. So, like, (laughs) the fuck was even the point? And I remember when we saw that moment in theaters and there was that they're courting death and you were so excited because you told me about how so much of Thanos's story is that and how he's in love with death and wants to impress her. And I was so excited for that concept. And then we got Infinity War and I'm like, you just want to balance the universal checkbook? This is so boring. And it's Josh Brolin doing his best space cowboy. I never know how I feel about Josh Brolin. I know that I think he's gorgeous. And I know that he made a gorgeous cable. And I know that I think he made a gorgeous cable. And I love that he's cable. I don't know how I feel that fact that cable is Thanos, but... I'm just never going to stop seeing that Saturday Night Live sketch where he's the businessman being prank called. And he's like yelling at the other person, you're the fart man, fart man. And I'm like, this is Thanos. That's great. Yeah, that's Thanos. Well, Kevo, do you have any final thoughts on the Avengers Assemble? 
No, I guess that's the Avengers as well. Pretty enjoyable overall. Again, no complaints. I Even the ending that wouldn't end, it's not that it was poorly written, but like, I'm tired. I'm so tired. I am so very tired because we've just finished an entire phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Looking back on phase one, I feel like I can summarize most of my feelings in one easy sentence cluster because I can't do anything in a single sentence. Hmm. Every time the Marvel Cinematic Universe tried to take a step back and understand the big picture better, they lost all the details. And any time the Marvel Cinematic Universe tried to zoom in and get those details right, the big picture became a mess. It's not going to be for quite a while that they find the balance. I ultimately believe the best films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe are Ragnarok, Black Panther, and Infinity War all back-to-back because they are the point at which they finally understand the formula and the format. I enjoyed Ant-Man and Wasp. I'm looking forward to Captain Marvel. But back to Phase 1. This in many ways does represent the end of Joss Whedon's reign. Joss Whedon will go on to make Age of Ultron, but at that point... He's so clearly unhappy, and frankly, the film does suffer as a result. Yeah, I think for me, the thing about Phase 1 is I personally, I don't generally love first seasons. I know that that's a really, like, tacky personal issue to have with most fiction. I either greatly adore a first season of something, or, you know, I find all of the team building and world building kind of tedious i'd rather have the sandbox ready to play in and a lot of phase one is introducing us to these concepts it helped a lot that they were existing concepts that went back 30 40 50 years but like i mentioned earlier in the episode we were racing the entire time to get the avengers all in the same room and now i'm excited to move forward and get into phase two and see what this world is going to be like now that these people all know each other and we have all these minor characters and threads and concepts that we can pull on And I get what you're saying, because in so many ways, it does feel like almost like a comic arc that had to come together over six issues. We had individual characters come together to form the Avengers. Iron Man, New Black Widow, Cap, New Fury, Iron Man, New Fury, come to think of it, Widow, New Fury, Coulson, New Fury, everyone, New Fury. Everybody knows Fury. Absolutely. But everyone didn't know each other. And that's what this gave us. This gave us that glue that finally made them a universe of cohesive heroes coming together. Kevo, I have so enjoyed taking a look at Phase 1 with you. Do you have any last thoughts as we depart for Iron Man 3 and the Marvel Cinematic Universe Phase 2? Oh no, I like Iron Man 3. We gotta talk about what we're looking forward to with from Iron Man 3. Uh, Iron Man 3 came out a full year after the Avengers, and this was still back in the time where we weren't really getting double, sometimes triple films in a year. So that was a really long time for us to have to wait for the fallout from everything that happened. Happened. I like Iron Man 3 a lot. I know a lot of people don't. I think it's a cool one. I'm looking forward to it. I am too, because I feel like it's one of the only Marvel Cinematic Universe movies I've only seen once. I like a lot of the places they go. I'm a huge Warren Ellis fan, so the use of extremists makes me extremely happy. Mm-hmm. And I believe... This is a big turning point. It's the final Iron Man movie because they come to accept that any movie Iron Man is in is going to be an Iron Man movie. Yeah, pretty much. So, Kevo, until we take another look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where can everybody find you? Twitter and Insta at Kevo Really. You can also check out our awesome comic book, Kid Riot, as well as its sister title, Capes and Boots, over at KidRiotComics.com. Don't forget to check out my music project at Facebook.com slash ActionDuo, where I make throwback R&B with my buddy Adam. As always, there's a ton of other amazing content over here on Cage Club, including X's for Podcasts, the show where Kevo, our boyfriend Jonah, and our friend Kyle, and I all come together to take a look at the X-Men comic book franchise, starting with Giant Size X-Men number one. There's also Now and Again, which I do with my buddy Chris. Been doing that for over two and a half years. It's been an amazing opportunity. Got me in on this awesome network. And if you're having just as much fun with this network as I am, consider donating to the Patreon, which you can find at cageclub.me. And don't forget to reach out to me on Instagram or Twitter at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. So until then, ladies and gentlemen, this has been Phase 1 of MCU.HTML, and have a good fucking night. Bye.